If you turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have been going through this book uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it has been a good study for us. We come near now to the last two chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we will be reading from verses 1 through 11, as Paul outlines for the church at Corinth the importance of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The scriptures read, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your most holy word. We pray, God, that we might understand that it is you who speaks through the pages of Scripture, that your word convicts, teaches, instructs, encourages, and guides. And so, Father, may you open wide our heart to you, that we might understand the importance of the resurrection of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. A long time ago, there was a little five-year-old boy. His name was Jimmy. Jimmy Tongowitz. He lived in Michigan. It was a cold January at that time, and he was chasing a sled across the frozen lake in Lake Michigan. And just like that, the ice broke and he fell beneath the ice. His dad watched him as that little boy sank into the freezing cold water and he heard, Save me, Dad. That was it. His dad tried to plunge in, but it was freezing water and the cold overcame him. And he left in the ambulance But for over 20 minutes, little Jimmy was 
submerged in that water. And so, when the rescuers came, they lifted out his little, limp, lifeless body, and he had no pulse. He had a lot going for him, though, primarily the fact that it was ice-cold water. Scientists call what happened to him as the mammalian diving reflex. And that is, the shock of the cold water allowed him to live without breathing abnormally for a long time. And slowly he came about, and today he lives a perfectly normal life. That's about as close as you might get, perhaps, to somebody who might come to a postmodern-day resurrection. And even that, it's more of a resuscitation, as all of those individuals, even in the scriptures, who came back to life will die again someday. But I'll tell you what, few things bring your life into focus, don't they? Few things bring your life into focus, as does sickness or a near-death experience, or the death of a loved one, doesn't it? If you're sick in a hospital room and you're facing the end of your life, you're not going to care so much about what color your carpet is, or what kind of cabinets you have, or whether or not the granite countertops have been installed correctly. You're not going to care about the little quibbles you had with somebody just the few months ago. You're not going to care about what kind of car you drive because you're at the end of your life. And that's the great equalizer, isn't it? Everybody who comes to the end of their life faces death. Everybody came into the world with nothing. And when you leave the world, you will also leave with nothing. When a person who comes, though, to that point in their life and they don't know Christ as their Savior, there is no hope. There is no hope. There's no hope of bliss or joy, no peace for what awaits them on the other side of this life isn't going to be any of that. But for Christians, those who have decided to place their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus, there's eternal life. There is future joy. There is life in heaven, everlasting worship. And it all pivots on one central truth. It pivots on the truth that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. It pivots on this very truth that there is life after death. And there is life after death. Because why? Jesus was raised from the dead and He lives today. It's that one doctrinal truth that's outlined here for us. And it's so important. This is in this passage today. And in the coming weeks... No other passage in Scripture elucidates the resurrection as much as Paul does here in this passage. It is a major theme in the Scriptures. It is part of the Gospel message that even Peter in his preaching early on in the early church, it is central to the message that we also communicate that Jesus is raised from the dead, that He lives again today, and because of that, We, too, will live again to life everlasting, joy in heaven. But there are people, many people, who do not believe in the resurrection. Sometimes you'll hear about it in 
your university classes. Sometimes you'll hear about it in the news. Sometimes you'll hear about it even in some archaeological finds when they posit some type of idea. So before we begin looking at this passage, perhaps it might be good to look at some of these theories that people have come up with that are against what the scriptures say. A number of popular ones exist. One is called the swoon theory or the resuscitation theory. People say, well, look, Jesus didn't really die. That's what the theory says. He didn't really die. He only swooned. He only fainted. And the disciples saw a person later on who was a resuscitated Christ. He was nailed to the cross. He suffered from shock. He suffered from the loss of blood. But instead of actually dying, he fainted from exhaustion. So when they placed him in the tomb, he was still alive. Mistaking him for dead, they buried him. Several hours later, in the cool of the tomb, he arose and he left. That's what the theory states. number of problems with that theory. In fact, the idea that the cold, damp air, instead of killing him, healed him was a problem that he kind of split out of his garments. He pushed this heavy stone away after being wounded. That he fought off the guards that were guarding the tomb and thereafter he appeared to his disciples. Uh, They don't account for the linen wrappings that were so neatly placed there afterwards, undisturbed, exactly as it had been around the body. They don't take into account the fact that the scriptures tell us there were a hundred pounds of spices and embalming on top of him. They don't take into account that Jesus, in his death, uh, fooled the judgment of the soldiers who pierced his side with a sword or with a spear. That he fooled the judgment of Pilate. That he fooled the judgment of the Jews who requested a guard for the tomb. That he fooled the judgment of the women who went to the tomb to further prepare the body with spices. That all of these people were wrong, saying that he was dead. Jesus had only swooned in his weakened condition. You imagine having been crucified and hung on a cross, having been beaten mercilessly, having hung there and having his side stabbed with a spear, was able to walk seven miles on the road to Emmaus afterwards? So quickly, and being able to remove the stone in front of his tomb, evade the guards so easily? No. The swoon theory, though popular, couldn't be true. Nor could the second one that's posited, the hallucination theory, that Christ's resurrection were just merely appearances and people were having hallucinations. All of these resurrection appearances, they say, can be dismissed if that were true. But how could so many people be hallucinating, especially 500 at one time? Or others at various times spread out over the course of a number of days? Psychiatrists say that those who have hallucinations, only certain kind, they say, those are usually high-strung, highly imaginative, very nervous types of people. But Christ appeared to many different types of people. They weren't restricted to just a few people in a certain area. 
Psychologists, psychiatrists also say hallucinations are linked to a person's past experiences, of which none of these people who witnessed had a past experience such as this. And they're usually restricted to a certain time, a certain place, not over a period of time. And they're restricted to a people who usually have a spirit of anticipation. But as disciples, you remember what happened. His disciples were discouraged, despondent, thinking that their Savior had died. So, certainly that's not a viable theory. Nor is the one that is positive as well, the impersonation theory. That he was impersonated. Somebody might call it the Robin Williams theory. The theory that, oh, the person who showed up here isn't really Christ. It's somebody else who pretended to be him. That's what some will say. But... How could the disciples, having spent three years with Jesus, mistaken him? And how could he impersonate the person who had his scars and his hands wounded? Even to Thomas, it was Christ. How could he appear in a locked room in a suddenly glorified body? No, no. Not the impersonation theory, nor is it the spiritual resurrection theory, which basically posits the idea that, no, Jesus wasn't resurrected in the body, he was resurrected in the spirit. They say that his body remained in the grave, and then it was his resurrected spirit that appeared. Yet, what happened? He showed that he could eat, Luke 24, 30. He could appear... Passed through objects, perhaps he could perhaps pass in a moment. He was touched by Thomas and his body, physical body, disappeared from the tomb as well. If it was just a spiritual resurrection, what happened to the body? History shows that there was a body there, and the enemies of Christ could simply produce a body and say, No, you're wrong. Here's the body of Christ. And that produced another theory, the fifth one that is sometimes posited by those who do not believe in the resurrection. It's called the theft theory, that somebody stole the body. They say that, well, somebody stole it. What would account, though, for the, for the wrappings that were there, so neat, so padded there? How could they overcome the guards? And if they could, why would they? The Romans wouldn't. They were set there to guard with their life. The tomb, the women couldn't. It would have been removing that heavy stone, removing all of the embalming, overcoming the guards. The disciples, they had run away. They wouldn't have stolen the body, huddled together in hidden rooms. Two had even left town and were on their way to Emmaus. Disciples were perplexed. The Jewish crowd wouldn't. They actually requested a Roman guard. In fact, the likelihood was highly unlikely. Scared Galilean disciples stealing a body? No. Or a last one that sometimes posited that it was an unknown tomb. That people who were crucified were often tossed into a common grave. And in that common grave, it is nondescript. But the Bible tells us that Joseph of Arimathea took his own tomb, that the women knew where to go to see Jesus. The disciples even knew where to run to, and they placed the guard there. 
All of these theories, you'll hear sometimes, you watch certain news programs when they discover something new, they'll posit some theory like the swoon theory, saying, well, Jesus didn't really die, he lived. In fact, he had a family. In fact, he got married. In fact, movies are made out of these types of theories that become very popular. And Costco will have travel tours to the sites where some of these theories happen. What does the scripture tell us, though? It tells us in verses 1 to 10 that there were witnesses, and these witnesses were powerful witnesses. For the gospel was preached, as Paul says here, he preached to you, verse 1, which you receive, which you stand, and which you are saved, if you hold fast the word of God. The gospel was preached to them, it was received, they were saved by the word of God. That little phrase there that says, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, it doesn't mean that uh, if they don't hold fast to it, that they'll lose their salvation. Rather, it's a warning. It's a warning against those who believed in vain. Because he had already told them, this Corinthian church, he had already told them, look, you have been saved. You received it and you stand in it. But saying to a crowd, any crowd, that all are saved is a generalization. For there are those there, likely, likely that didn't know who Jesus was, didn't have a personal relationship with Him. They believed the right facts, maybe. They had heard the right truth. They accepted some of those ideas. But in their life, there was no change, no transformation of the power that exhibits itself in holding to the Word of God. Their belief would be in vain then. They weren't standing in the truth. And that simply gives evidence to what? That simply gives evidence to a non-saving, non-effectual, non-transforming, false faith. It's like when I lived in Texas. You ask somebody, are you a Christian? Everybody's a Christian in Texas. That's just what you are. You walk down the street, they're the nicest people in the world. You think to yourself, they must be Christians. Everybody will say that they are, but not everyone truly is. And he goes into what is the core of the gospel message. He says of first importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. That is the central tenet of our Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Wilbur Smith states in his book, Therefore Stands, he writes this, for the first, from the first day of its divinely bestowed life, the Christian church has unitedly borne testimony to its faith in the resurrection of Christ. It is what we may call one of the great fundamental doctrines and convictions of the church. And so penetrates the literature of the New Testament that if you lifted out every passage in which a reference is made to the resurrection, you would have a collection of writings so mutilated that what remained could not be understood. The resurrection entered intimately into the life of the earliest Christians. In fact, of it appears in tombs and the drawings found on the walls of the catacombs. It entered deeply into Christian hymnology. It became one of the most vital themes of the great apologetic writings of the first four centuries. It was a theme constantly dwelt upon in the preaching of the Anti-Nicene and the Post-Nicene period. 
It entered at once into the creedal formula of the church. It is in our Apostles' Creed. It is in all the great creeds that follows. All evidence of the New Testament goes to show that the burden of the good news or gospel was not, quote, follow this teacher and do your best, but Jesus and the resurrection. You cannot take that away from Christianity without radically altering its character or destroying its identity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the core of what Christians believe. It is a fundamental of the faith. And that is why when you look at a doctrinal statement on some website of some school of some church or some parachurch organization, you look for the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ because it is at the core of our belief. As Paul will elucidate later. When you look at all of the religions of the world, Josh McDowell states, all but four of the major world religions are based upon some philosophical proposition. When you look at these four major religions of the world, only one of these four religions has as its core an empty tomb and a resurrected Savior. When you look at the major religion of Judaism, their father of their faith is Abraham, who died about 1900 B.C. You look at the core of Buddhism, which Wilbur Smith in his book says the original accounts of Buddha never ascribed to him any such thing as a resurrection. In fact, in the earliest accounts of his death, we read that when Buddha died, it was, quote, with a utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains behind. You look at the third one, Islam. Muhammad died June 8th, 632 A.D. at the age of 61 at Medina where his tomb is annually visited by thousands of pilgrims. William Lane Craig writes, Without the belief in the resurrection of the Christian faith could not come into being. Disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men. The message, you see, of the resurrection of Jesus is front and center. And that is why Paul says, I deliver to you that which is of first importance, of primary importance, that of the resurrection of Jesus. And that was substantiated by witnesses. And he goes on to elucidate who they were. He says, Jesus appeared to Peter, whose name is Cephas in your Bibles. That is Peter's name, also known as Cephas. Then to the twelve then to 500, then to James. And there were two Jameses, by the way, in the Scriptures. And I believe this one refers to James, the half-brother of Jesus. And then there was whom? Then to all of the apostles. And that doesn't include others. Perhaps the others who were on the way to Emmaus, perhaps the women, perhaps the gardener, whoever else. These were just a sampling of all of those that he appeared to. Now I realize today when you turn on the TV and you watch some of these, uh, you know, Dayline or whatever, many times they'll posit the idea of the fallacy of a eyewitness testimony. That an eyewitness testimony isn't always 100% sure. But the preponderance of evidence usually is based upon a few eyewitnesses. Here you had hundreds of eyewitnesses spread out over time from a variety of demographic backgrounds. 
in a variety of circumstances, people undoubtedly of different life stages saw the risen Savior, touched the risen Savior, had a meal with the risen Savior, all because of what? He had truly arisen from the dead. The evidence from the accounts is staggering when you go through the New Testament. William Lyon Phelps, for more than 40 years, he was Yale's distinguished professor of English literature, author of some 20 volumes. He says this, In the whole story of Jesus Christ, the most important event is the resurrection. Christian faith depends on this. It is encouraging to know that it is explicitly given by all four evangelists and told also by Paul. The names of those who saw him after his triumph over death are recorded. It may be said that the historical evidence for the resurrection is stronger than for any other miracle anywhere narrated. For as Paul said, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. So says C.S. Lewis as well in speaking of the importance of his appearances later on. He says the first fact of the history of Christendom is the number of people who say they have seen the resurrection. If they had died without making anyone else believe the gospel, no gospels would ever have been written. Not only when Paul writes this, you notice what he says. He says, look, 500 of them, some of them are still alive today. Go and ask them yourselves. Out of these hundreds of people, an overwhelming number of people were witnesses to what Paul delivered to them as of first importance. All of the apostles, he showed himself to, and Paul looks at himself and he says to me, he showed himself even to me the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle. Do you realize that when Jesus appeared, one of the requirements to be an apostle is that you had to have seen the risen Savior. All of the other apostles were believers, were followers of God at the time that they knew and saw the resurrected Savior. Paul, on the other hand, he was a what? He was a persecutor of the church. He had led a violent persecution. He stood by while Stephen was being stoned and gave his approval. Undoubtedly, he led and sanctioned the hardship that would come upon Christians. He sanctioned their beating, their torture, their death. And yet, God in His grace appeared to him as Jesus appeared to him in a vision on the Damascus Road, saying, Saul... Why do you persecute me? And he says in verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain. That is how we all are, isn't it? By the grace of God we are who we are. By his grace of God we're, we're, we've been blessed to wake up this morning. That we're not waking up in some hospital bed this morning. That we have been graced by God to come to where we are at. As difficult of a life you may have, and I don't know where everyone is here, you may have a very difficult life. You may be having conflict or division, or you may not get along with others, or you may have certain struggles. You may have a lot of guilt. You may have a lot of burdens. But by God's grace, you're here today to hear about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. All so that you could have life. 
By the grace of God, He's brought us to where we're at. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, for decades perhaps, all by God's grace. And His grace, Paul says, did not prove vain. Because, you see, His grace works in our life. And His grace causes us to be who we are, changing our lives. And when we look at the extent of Paul's ministry and his suffering, and all that he had done, he had suffered, and what he says here is true. That he had done greater things, longer, worked harder. And it's not because he's trying to brag, it is because he is boasting in the grace of God within him. There's a number of implications and applications to this whole idea. The first is being, when we look at the life of Paul especially, no one deserves to be saved. No one deserves to be saved. No one can say to God, look at so-and-so. There have been such a good and wonderful example. They ought to go to heaven. They've done so many good things in their life for humanity. They must be in heaven. God would never reject somebody who is good. But the fact of the matter is, no one deserves heaven. No one can be generous enough, good enough, go to church enough, serve enough, and earn their way to heaven. The gospel is free. But it requires that one receive that gift from Jesus as they place their faith and their trust in Him alone. Secondly, no one is so sinful, though, that God cannot save them. God saved a murderer. God redeemed a persecutor. God rescued a person who tortured and sanctioned the death of other Christians who would qualify himself, perhaps as the least of all apostles, but surely the Christians back then would have said of Paul, he's destined to hell. Yet God in His great grace saved him and changed his life as a powerful witness to God. Somebody back then would probably say, no, they have done so many wicked things, God could not redeem them. And yet that is a display of God's grace. God's grace upon a life that is undeserving. Somehow we often compare ourselves to others and say, well, I'm deserving of that. They may not be, but I am. You know, a long time ago, I remember watching, and some of us have seen perhaps the testimony of Ted Bundy, who was a serial killer in this area, who abducted college students from the University of Washington. And killed many. In his interview with Dr. James Dobson, a focus on the family, I remember him sharing, remember him sharing about the process by which he had gone through. And he displayed and shared about his own faith now that he had heard the gospel that God had saved him. And some would say, how could God save a person like that? Because God is a God of grace. Because God grants salvation, not only to Paul, but perhaps to a man like Ted Bundy in his testimony, or to a person like me. Like me. What makes us more worthy than the next Nothing within ourselves, but by the love of God, God graced us with the opportunity for salvation. 
No one is so sinful that God cannot save them. I've had someone say to me, I don't know if God will accept me. I've done some serious things in my life. And I told them, well, no, God loves you so much. He can save anyone. No one deserves to be saved. But no one is so sinful that God cannot save them. Thirdly, the grace of God proves itself. The grace of God shows or displays itself. Just as the grace of God worked within a murderer or persecutor of Christians like Paul, three years later, changing his life, becoming a tool in God's hands who would ultimately evangelize the Gentiles and bring many to know Him, writing nearly half of the New Testament for us to read and to grow by. The grace of God displays itself in a person's life. And fourthly, there is no pride then in success. There is no pride in success because it is God who enables us to live. God who enables us to serve. God who enables us to have a ministry. God who inclines our heart towards Him. God who lifts the blindness from our eyes. God and God alone. And all glory goes to God. And that is why when things go right, glory goes to Him. When sin enters in, we take the responsibility. That is what Paul shares here. And ultimately, he says in verse 11, whether it is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. That is a humble statement, isn't it? It doesn't matter who gets the credit. It doesn't matter who did what. The fact is, they believed. Whether it was from me or from them, it is the message in God's grace that saves. So often, we want to ascribe credit. We want to say, oh man, yeah, I was a part of that. Or we want to say, oh no, they did that and blame them. But what really matters is that God's will is done. Some of a Bible study or a church grows, we praise God. We don't go around praising a particular person. If a church gets a building, it doesn't matter who gave what. It is God who granted that. If people are saved, it is not because of someone's eloquence. It is because of the Word of God that they are saved. It is because of God. And by the grace of God, we come to Him. So the Gospel was preached. It was believed, it was received, and they were saved. All of this was on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of which hundreds of witnesses saw. And the least of these witnesses, as Paul tells, calls himself, was Him. And yet, Scripps Howard News Service, in their survey, only 36% of Americans, American adults, believe that after you die your physical body will someday be resurrected. 54% do not believe so. It's fascinating sometimes what people say. In an interview with a renowned atheist, there's an article that was documented because in Portland, Oregon, there's a particularly noted atheist named Christopher Hitchens. Most people recognize his book by the title, which was entitled, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. He was interviewed by a Unitarian minister, Marilyn Sewell, and the following exchange takes place near the start of the interview. 
Sewell, the Unitarian minister who's a liberal, says, The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian and I don't take the stories of the scriptures literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religions? Hitchens replies, he says this, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that He rose again from the dead and by His sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. (laughs) Sewell replied, let me go someplace else. And she continued the interview. You ever wonder what an atheist and a liberal Unitarian minister might say to one another when the atheist is the one who gets it right? Because that's what the scriptures say, that Jesus was risen from the dead. And that if you do not believe that, you're not in any meaningful sense a Christian. What an irony, huh? What a testimony of scripture and what the truth of God is revealed here in this text. That Jesus was preached, that he arose from the dead. And if we place our faith and trust in him, God will grant to us forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God in heaven, we sing of your praises and of your love. And in that love, it was demonstrated to us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We give you thanks. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow, we sing. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, oh God, we have life. And life everlasting for those who have trusted in him. We give you thanks, O God, for your word, and may our faith grow strong because of that testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.